Sound Design Live. As you know, this is probably the best place in the world for music technology business. And we've really been lucky that a lot of these companies have been opening offices and relocating here. You know, I mean, SoundCloud now has a fabulous office here. Spotify has a fabulous office here. Google and Pandora, BitTorrent. Sound Design Live. Welcome to Sound Design Live. Today I'm talking with Brian Zisk, founder and producer of SF Music Tech which addresses issues surrounding the music industry. This is important to my audience because most of them work in uh, the event industry in some manner, either as sound engineers, sound designers, um, or event staff in some way. Um, so thanks for being here. Thanks for having, having me. Great. Um, I was wondering if you could start off by just explaining how you got started in the music industry and what some of your first jobs were. Well, I've always loved music. It's just been one of those things. Um, and I've always been around both music and the music industry. You know, when I was in New York at NYU, you know, Def Jam was starting in the dorm room above mine. It was just always, always around it. Um, but I was more, you know, a, a economist slash, you know, I mean, market trader guy. Um, but uh, when the internet happened, I was very active in building websites and stuff like that. And a friend came to me and said, hey, let's do... Uh, internet radio sites, and we built uh, a network of open source audio powered uh, internet radio stations, which we were lucky enough to sell uh, back, you know, in the dot-com days. So, so this our, is while you were still in school? No, this, I, I had been out of school uh, at this point, done a couple other things, but I skipped over the other things to get right to the music <laughs> stuff. Cut right to the music. Um, you know, but our real aim had been to help musicians and to help artists, and then we sold the company, and then it you know didn't really help artists that much. So I started the uh, Future of Music Coalition, which is a nonprofit artist advocacy organization out of Washington D.C. Um, you know, there are about four or five of us who started it. What we saw was that you know the whole change to you know away from plastic discs was was inevitable, and if musicians didn't get out ahead of it. Uh, they were going to get swamped. And did we catch that wave? I don't really know. You know, it's, it is, uh, uh, you know, one of those situations where musicians uh, can definitely, um, you know, there aren't the bottlenecks of distribution anymore. There aren't the, the, the gatekeepers anymore. Um, but, you know, monetizing is also incredibly hard. So, um, you know, but the real aim of that organization was to help musicians uh, deal with the, the, the change over to digital that was just inevitable. So, you know, did a lot of stuff with that and then uh, started throwing conferences with that organization, which were just great, but they were like, you know, head of the copyright office and senators and congresspeople and really, what I much more enjoy is entrepreneurs and developers and musicians and press and investors. And that's the sort of the ecosystem I care about much more than the whole, you know, we should, we should sue everybody and shut down the internet. Um, <laughs> so that's kind of how I, how I got into it. I just really enjoy connecting people and really helping the whole ecosystem move forward. So I just decided to, you know, have these events, which have been... Uh, doing pretty well in getting people together. Maybe if you could just share a couple of your favorite details, for example, um, if there was uh, something that you saw at this year's conference that you really enjoyed that you want to share. 
Well, I mean, it's all about the people. That's really what it's about, is everybody coming together and, and uh, you know, moving things forward. I mean, I will say Jaron Lanier, um, you know, brought his a collection of some of his instruments, thousands of year old instruments, and played them and did a, a fabulous, um, you know, session showing off all sorts of like the precursors of original of the instruments that are now and I mean that was just incredible. I mean David Lowry doing his thing was incredible. The activism session was great. I mean the video stuff we had, you know, the Natalie Dawn and Jack from Pomplamoose. A lot of these sessions, a lot of the panels are already up on SoundCloud. People Correct. can listen to them there. Um, David Lowry for example has his entire presentation with all of his slides mm -hmm. online and I'll post a link to that. Great. Um, I'm hoping that, I don't know if you already posted it, but I'll just share that my, I really like stories. Mm -hmm. um, so while some of the panels had interesting guests who basically just answered questions, uh, my favorite was um, with the owner and I guess general manager of Roxy Music oh, in Nick LA. Nick Adler, yes. Nick Adler, his story was great because yes. he's so humble and he basically started off knowing nothing about how to promote himself online mm -hmm. and then went to being, he says, the most well-known music venue online, yeah. something like that, something, something amazing. And so his story was really good, and he just told it straight out, and, and I don't know, it was yeah, sort Nick, of amazing. Yeah, Nick is great, and he's an amazing individual, and his story is, is fantastic, and we'll try to get that one up. That's one of the ones I'm always like, ah, oh, but, but we don't have the graphics to go along with the audio. But I've gotten a couple of requests for his in the last uh, couple of days, so we'll try to get that up. Um, you know, but, but it's also, it's interesting that you go to stories because everybody goes to something. And for me, what I go to are the most interesting people pop possible. Since we're talking about that, I think now's a good time for me to bring up my one major criticism. Please. I also want to bring up, because I'm also interested in producing my own events, I would sure. like to do an event for event industry professionals that would be more of a hands-on hardware and tech event Great. where people could actually use a lot of the tools that we see cool. new tools coming out. I'm curious why there wasn't more information about what each panel would be about, descriptions. And I say that because mm -hmm. I ended up at some that I thought were going to be about one thing and ended up being about something else. And that, then I feel like maybe I missed some that's that a, I might have been interested That's a good and legitimate criticism that we are planning to address. We actually intend to write longer descriptions about each of the panels. Um, it's one of those interesting things that I actually do things differently than a lot of people. Most people um, who do events pick a topic, know what it's going to be about, and then find people to speak to that topic. What I do is I grab the most interesting people I could find, and then a month before the event go, okay, now what are they gonna talk about? And what happens in a lot of cases, especially you know when folks are really busy, or you know, I'm still trying to confirm a moderator, or this or that, sometimes it's only at the very last minute that it even gets sussed out what folks are gonna talk about. What I do is I'll get six people and I'll say, I believe they're all cohesive in this way around this, and then I'll throw them into a conversation and go, did I come up with the best thing for all of you guys to talk about? But yes, it's a very valid critique and one that we aim and intend to address. Um, a lot of times we nail those things, and sometimes when I'm dealing in the last week with my 50 sponsors, 100 speakers, and 1,000 plus <laughs> attendees, I'm just like, ah! But, but you're, yes, it, it's, it's, it's a valid thing. We want to support you here, and I want to give you uh, 
my personal applause for being creative and innovative and please find out what you can with us to to really stay here and grow here with us thank you very much good good morning thank you so much mayor ed lee thank you Many people in my audience work in the live event industry, Great. and I'm sure you've been to a lot of live concerts and a lot of live lot events, of and yep. you produce them. So yep. um, what do you think are some changes that you would personally like to see to make live events more enjoyable? When you're at them, you're thinking, I wish they would have done X. I have more issues with like transport to and from, transports to and from events. I mean, that's why I'm becoming a big fan of these like couch tour things, where I can watch it at home. It's like, I work so hard and I get exhausted. I don't know what I want to do, you know, five months from today at this night. You know, and it's like for the sort of bands that I like to see, it's like, yeah, I like little bands, but I also love the bands I know, you know. And if I'm going to go try to see Neil Young at Shoreline, to take an example of something every year, I look at it, I go, I want to go to the bridge benefit. And it's even a benefit, so blah, blah, blah. But after... Tickets and transport and babysitting and all, you know, what do we look at? $700? Mm-hmm. You know, and it's one of those things where, you know, how can the whole experience be a little better? I mean, I'd love if they freaking had childcare at shows. That would be like if there was a room where the kids were all playing, you know, so, so really a lot of it is just finding, finding better ways to, to let me make later decisions and get me safely to the show and back. Off the top of your head, list a couple of the um, technologies you can remember that are bringing uh, events to people's homes in the form of live streaming sure, sure. or um, something else. Well, there are more and more. I mean, YouTube's doing some interesting stuff. Um, BitTorrent is doing some very interesting stuff. Uh, TRI, Bob Weir Studios up in Marin is doing some interesting stuff. Uh, Yahoo has still 34 million people who <laughs> they're ex- exposing to video streams. Uh, Evan Lowenstein with Stage It is doing some interesting stuff. Uh, I'd look out for a company at some point called Shogo TV is about to do some really interesting stuff. Uh, what's J- Jared Leto from uh, 30 Seconds to Mars? He's got, I'm trying to remember his company, might be Viff. I, I don't remember what it's called, but he's got a golden ticket type streaming uh, project. You know, Brad from Nugs.net. I mean, he's doing the live streams for folks like Fish and Metallica. You know, there's a lot, a lot of different folks. I help a company called SwitchCam, which is uh, they, they aggregate all the video for a show after and turn it into like multi-view you know, multi angle. Yeah, cool. it's very cool. A lot of really, there's a lot of really cool stuff, um, and there's going to be more and more. I mean, uh, on a on a more more infrastructure level, I mean, Spreecast has a way for multiple folks to all communicate and broadcast live. You've got like live stream, Justin TV, UStream, uh, Talkbox has an interesting kind of video thing. I know folks like. Dan Peachy, chat with the band, or building infrastructure on top of that. It's hard almost to to recommend any particular tools because you know three weeks later it's you know it could be something else. I mean I know you know you look at some of these hardware packs people have. I mean my friend Eddie Codell, forget what company you know he was helping, but you know he would have this you know they'd have like six wireless radios going to all these different 
you know, network. So if one network goes down, you can still get the signal out on another network. And it's just like, it's amazing because that's a big issue is really the quality of service. It's like, if you're going to get people to come, it's like, you know, oh, we're doing it for free and no one cares. Fine, your quality doesn't need to be that good. But if all of a sudden you're, you've got a sponsored show or you've got people who are paying for the live stream or, you know, I mean, and the stuff doesn't work, that's when, I mean, you know, if you're at a show, the sound may be crappy, but, you know, it works. You see the people perform. You're going to experience it. You paid your money. It's almost definitely not being canceled. You know, especially when we're talking about internet streams to places that may not be that, you know, they may not have great bandwidth. It may be someone's grandma, you know, and maybe they, you know, I, it, it becomes really difficult. And, you know, and then you start having to make trade-offs where you're like, okay, well, we're just going to do it on a best effort basis. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, but we do it really cheaply to, you know, this needs to be military grade and you're spending a huge amount of money and a lot really ends up being these trade-offs and you just have to have to evaluate and test. And, you know, and it's also hard sometimes because, you know, you're an early adopter and you're trying these things and they don't work and they don't work and they won't don't work and you give up. And three years later, everybody else is using it and you're like, it doesn't work. And they're like, no, it didn't work when you were using it before we officially launched, but now it works great. So there, there's really a lot. And, and as you're talking about, you know, why you're using one particular recording program versus the other, it's kind of like figure out what you're comfortable with. And if it works, I mean, go with it. There's always the, you have the ability to really scale up to serve a lot more people without having to buy the hardware like you did in the old days. And I think, I think it's, I think it's a golden age for folks wanting to, to, to broadcast uh, live over the internet. It's hard to judge. Like I have this problem always with all my events is that, you know, I double attendance in the last three weeks. And it's really, scary to look at like some show that you think will have 1400 people but you've got 600 tickets sold a, you know a month out and you're like you know do I do I provision for 1400 or do I provision for 600 and it's you know and in the in the end luckily it always seems to really do that double but it's really scary and a leap of faith and it makes it really hard really hard to plan because in reality, if I knew I was going to sell another 700 tickets, all of a sudden I'd, I'd do some really more incredible things, but I can't scale to do that if I don't know if I'm going to have the resources to do that. So I don't think I'm going to tell you about anything you don't know, but I just wanted to mention that I'm really interested in seeing if crowdfunding concerts are going to take off right. um, in the U.S. because... I'm excited about this company in this group in Rio de Janeiro in Brazil called Queremos. They've been super successful in bringing in artists mm -hmm. that never would have come to Rio de Janeiro because they pre-sell all the tickets. <sighs> okay. Um, month like a two or three months ahead of time because the idea is that if right. they don't sell all the tickets, then they're not going to have the concert. Uh, I just threw a Future of Money and Technology Summit this last week, so I've been pushing all of my 
I said Future of Money. It was Future of Money and Technology Summit. I've been pushing all my music stuff back. But the other guy outside of you who's been the most persistent has been Jayesh Parmar from this company called Picotic. Mm -hmm. And they similarly are based around um, getting people to say they would buy a certain concert. You know, when, when you do an event, it's really about finding the right people to come to the event. And that's some of the biggest problem with, with, with concerts and promoters is because, yes, there's the crowd that will go to the film more regularly, but really, if you have artists, the real trick is how do you reach out to each artist's individual fan base? And these kind of crowd demand aggregation sites are really, really good because it's a way where either the bands or the community or the fans can kind of show that there's the aggregated demand and kind of then by attaching the, the known demand to a promoter and a venue, it becomes a no-brainer to, to book a show. I wanted to talk a little bit about David Lowry's presentation. So his presentation he calls Meet the New Boss, Worse Than the Old Boss. And right. it's kind of this idea that um, content creators aren't being paid. It's a really interesting way of looking at things that definitely has some validity to certain parts of the ecosystem. My argument is hold on to your rights and then do what you can to build your celebrity and then try to monetize them later. But there, was def there were definitely folks who did better taking in advance and then never ma making it on the back end. I mean, and it's interesting because, you know, David comes up and does a 30-minute presentation, and it was great. But it's one of those things where I think if he had done a 10-hour presentation, he would have dug much more deeply. I mean, he's really, really smart. And I think he would have dug in in a way where everyone would have realized that he had a much bigger vision of how this all fits together than the sound bites that come out of a 30-minute presentation. I mean, he clearly, I mean, he was in litigation with a bunch of the major labels. He clearly, you know, was delivering songs to them. Like, what was that song? He was in the dispute with Virgin Records, and I think he delivered to them that song, It Ain't Gonna Suck Itself, about how he was being just screwed by his label. So it's. I don't think folks, like by just hearing the sound bites, get a picture of how well-rounded his view actually is. And what I think is really important isn't that he absolutely believes this one thing that is different from everyone else's belief system. I think it was really, the, the importance is, here's this one area which isn't being recognized. So not like it's the one true viewpoint that then people extrapolate something that he isn't saying, which is we should all go back to that system. And if we should all go back to that system, the only way is to shut down the new system. And that's not what he's saying. No, right? that's, that's not what I heard. Okay, I, what did you hear? I, I just heard that um, content creators uh, aren't, being paid enough and mm -hmm. and the current system is not sustainable and so there should we should be looking for solutions and ideas to make sure content creators get well, paid. Well, we should be looking for solutions and ideas for content creators to get paid, absolutely. Now, this comes back to what I was saying about kind of technologies being agnostic. It's like, 
you have an ecosystem and it's an agnostic ecosystem. The ecosystem is not, it's not sentient. It can't say, I need to find a way to get creators paid. And really, a lot of it is up to the creators because it's this new toolkit. And it clearly isn't one where the toolkit's gonna make sure you get paid, or the creators of the toolkit are gonna make sure you get paid, but through creative applications of the technology, that's what creators need to do, use in order to get paid, because it's not like, I mean, the old system isn't there anymore. We're here with a new system. And the new system isn't gonna take care of artists out of some you know, universal sense of benevolence. It's really gotta be that through the application of information and through the application of these tools that allow the artists and the fans to connect more directly, artists have to step up and make sure that they take advantage of these tools. So it's like, you know, the, the theory that's out there these days about why the RIEA and the big folks don't want all of these collective methods of paying artists to move forward is the theory that I'm hearing most these days is that in a situation like that, anybody has access to the playing field and so all of a sudden the indies can compete with the majors and blah, blah, blah. So they don't really want that to happen. Why is it so much about enforcement as opposed to new ways of making money is largely protecting the old status quo. So then what do you need to do to make money with the new status quo? And that really is one of those things that folks need to figure out on their own because the system's not gonna just inherently do it. In that speech, he criticizes the Future Music Coalition, which I'm a founder of, you know? And it's like, you know, we just came out with this great artist revenue survey showing where artists make their money. I definitely recommend people look at it, futureofmusic.org. But at the same time, you know, so much of the debate is the internet is screwing us, and the internet can't screw anybody, it's, it's a tool, <laughs> versus the folks who are the internet advocates who are just like, your way is dead. And there needs to be productive ways to move this forward, which is why we do SF Music Tech and try to get everybody in the room to try to move it forward productively because, because if we don't figure it out, it clearly is a rough, spot for creators. So, you know, some, some are doing fine, but really it's hard because like creating great music, doing great internet stuff is a huge amount of work and takes a huge amount of talent. And, you know, if your real aim is to create music, do you really have to be a great music creator? Do you have the time to be a great internet promoter as well? And these are big unanswered questions, and I'm really glad that, you know, that David came and asked him. Thanks again for talking with me Thank today. Thank you. Thank you for coming and out. I invite everyone to come out to SF Music Tech, and where is the best place for people to follow what you're doing online? sfmusictech.com. Sound design. Live.